those of you who are uh, members of the church, that's almost all of us here, uh, I want to ask you a question this morning. Has anyone ever asked you, uh, whether you've been here for a year or seven years, uh, about your church and, and, and asked you this question, what kind of church are you? Don't ever gotten that question before, what kind of church are you? What kind of church do you go to? What do you tell them in that moment? There's, there's a number of things we could say to them. We, we, we could start, and I don't think any of us have done this, but, but let's just say, we could, we could say, well, we're Christians. We're, we're Christian church. That, that would not do much good in today's day and age, right? There, there are so many different, not only sects of Christianity, but just belief systems that somehow fall under that label. That, that doesn't really help us to, to say we're a Christian church. They, they, want, they want to know more. So, so, okay, what do you mean by that? Well, we could say we're Protestant. We are a Protestant church. And that's good because as we do every October, we celebrate the Reformation. We celebrate the five solas that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the word of God alone, according to the, to the glory of God alone. But, but Protestantism as itself has divided into all these denominations, all these strands. And there's, there's, there's liberal Protestants, there's conservative Protestants, there's, there's all sorts of Protestants. And so they want to know more, right? So, so, so we, we might say, well, we're non-denominational. And uh, that, that maybe meant something more 15 or 20 years ago, but, but now it just says we're not part of a denomination. And, and that even communicates maybe what we don't want to communicate, because we actually we, we have brothers and sisters who are part of denominations. There's nothing bad about denominations. We, we, we benefit from them. And so, so we don't necessarily want to focus in there. We are evangelical in the classic sense of the word, but, but if you follow the news at all, the term evangelical has been, has been reshaped so much to be a cultural term more than anything that, that really is not helpful. We celebrate believers' baptism, but we don't identify primarily as a Baptist church. We, we align closely with what Reformed theology teaches about the sovereignty of God and the glory of God, but, but we don't label ourselves reformed, and we don't, as we said in our membership class, we don't have a secret Calvinist handshake here at Redeemer. We are a Bible church in that we seek to teach and submit to the Word of God, but, but again, whose interpretation of the Word of God do we follow? What do we, what do we teach from the Word of God? All these labels were helpful at one point in time to help people understand their identity and communicate that identity to the world around them, but many of them have taken on confusing or unhelpful meanings over the years. So, so Redeemer Church, what kind of church are we? Well, since we planned in 2012, the, the most consistent answer I've given and many of you have given is we are a gospel-centered church. We are a gospel-centered church. We want to be a gospel-centered church. We aspire to be a gospel-centered church. That is a good answer. But even with that label, we don't just want to say that and lose its meaning. We, we, we want to know what we mean by that. We want to own that. When we say we're a gospel-centered church, we want to explain, here's what we mean by that. Because a lot of people will say, you mean you do, you do gospel music? Right? And, and so we want to say, no, no, here's what we mean by a gospel church, a gospel-centered church. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
In these verses, God tells us that the good news of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising again is more important than anything else. It is the most important thing. And what this means is that the most important thing about a church is if it makes the most important thing the most important thing. That the most important thing about a church is if it centers itself on the gospel because God has said the gospel is most important. That needs to be the defining mark of a church. So so again, we are and we aspire to be a gospel-centered church. And here's what that means practically. It means that the gospel is both the foundation on which we are built and and it also gives us the material we build with. It's both our foundation and the means of our formation as a body. It's our foundation. It is what we believe. It's what gives us our very identity as a church. But it also provides us with what we need to build. It, it, it gives us everything we need to be shaped. Everything we do as a local church is shaped by and filled with the gospel. So, so you want to know what a gospel-centered church is? Here's what you tell people. A gospel-centered church is a church that is founded on and formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're founded on it and we're formed by it. Both of those realities are necessary. Now, over the next eight weeks, we're going to be in a series called Foundations and Pillars. Foundations and Pillars. For the first four weeks, we will be reflecting on the gospel foundations that we are built on as a church. And here's what those gospel foundations are. One, the glory of God. Two, the sinful condition of man. Three, the person and work of Christ. And four, the necessity of repentance and faith. Those are the gospel foundations that we are built on as a church. God is glorious. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior. And to be saved, we must repent and believe. That is what we are built on. Those are, that is our foundation. Now, after a month of reflecting on those foundations, we're going to spend a month thinking about how that gospel and those foundations then shape our ministry, specifically in regards to our pillars, worship, fellowship, discipleship, mission. How does that gospel fill and shape this ministry that we have here as a church? How does the glory of God, the sinfulness of man, the personal work of Christ, and the need for repentance and faith shape and form our ministry here? Foundations and pillars, what we believe and what we do, doctrine and ministry. And our prayer as elders through this series is that our grasp of the gospel would be firmer, our delight in the gospel would be deeper, and our ministry of the gospel would be more faithful here at Redeemer Church. So before we dive into this first message, I want to pray one more time for God to do those very things. Let's, Let's pray together again. Our Father in heaven, we praise you as the God of the gospel. Lord Jesus, we we look to you right now as the head of your church who you gave yourself for in love. And we pray that by your Spirit, you would show us your glory. You would expose us in our sinfulness. You would magnify the cross of Christ. You would renew us in faith and repentance and that you would strengthen our pursuit of your glory and the joy of all people through worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. Lord, we pray these things for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen.
So the first gospel foundation that we're going to be looking at is the foundation of the glory of God. The glory of God. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God reveals his glory to Moses. Now, this series is going to be a little bit different in that we're going to be jumping around the scriptures uh, each week, but we're going, to, we're going to land each week in a text, a primary text that we're going to look at and explain and seek, and seek to exposit. We don't want to pull ideas that aren't there from the Bible. We want to show that this is what this text is talking about every time we preach. And so today we're going to look at Exodus 34, 6, and 7. But before we do, let's just remember the story of the Exodus for a few moments. Let's just reflect on this story. And and to understand the story of the Exodus, you really have to go back a little further to the story of Abraham. You you need need to recognize and remember that that there was a man named Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. And God called this man, and he he chose him and made a promise to him. He said, said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God made this promise to Abraham. He entered into a covenant with Abraham of blessing and of guaranteeing that that from his line would come a a great nation, and from that nation all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the covenant God made. And and Abraham believed God, and and God uh, established his covenant with him. He gave him a son in his old age, Isaac. He reestablished the covenant with Isaac, and then again with his son, Jacob. And by the end of Genesis, you have Abraham's family who, by God's providence, had to sojourn down to Egypt during a famine. And and so we we see Abraham's family not in the land that God had promised, but down in Egypt, and and there they flourished. And that's where Exodus starts. Abraham's family, the Israelites, are flourishing in Egypt. They're flourishing so much that the Egyptians become afraid. And and the Egyptians say, we need need to to somehow suppress these Israelites, or else they're going to take the power from us. And so they make them their slaves. And for 400 years... The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. God's people, whom he had called Abraham's family, are enslaved in Egypt. And they cry out to God, and God raises up a man, an Israelite, but but raised up as an Egyptian prince, Moses, and he sends Moses to deliver his people from slavery. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh, let God's people go. And, And, of course, like any Cain would, Pharaoh does not say, oh, sure, he says, no, I'm not going to let them go. This is my workforce. These, these are our slaves. We're, we need them. He does not let them go. And so God raises up Moses to, to do signs and wonders through. And plague after plague after plague falls on the Egyptians. Pharaoh continues to say no over and over again until finally a plague comes where the firstborn sons in all of Egypt are killed, including the son of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh finally says, acknowledging who this God is, he's dealing with, says, your people can go. And so Israel actually plunders the Egyptians, and, and, and it's a victory march out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. But as they're traveling, Pharaoh changes his mind. Pharaoh says, what have I done? And he gathers his army, and he pursues them, and, and God has led Israel to the Red Sea, and all of a sudden Israel has an ocean in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them, and they're just saying, we're going to die here. Why do we not just stay in Egypt, Egypt where, where things were better than this? We're all going to die. And in that moment, God comes through in the most miraculous way, 
through Moses, he parts the sea, a wall of water on the left, a wall of water on the right. The Israelites walk through on dry land, and as the last Israelite steps onto dry land on the other side of the sea, God allows the waves to crash back down onto the Egyptian army, and Israel is definitively freed from slavery. God has redeemed his people. He, he has done it. He has set them free. Now he's going to lead them to the promised land. But before he does, he leads them to a place called Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God comes down in a cloud of fire and dwells on top of the mountain with his people. And he enters into covenant with his people. He says, I bore you on eagles' wings out of Egypt. And now, if you will obey my commandments, you will be my treasured possession in all the earth. And he gives them his Ten Commandments. And he gives them his law. And they say, we will obey. We will follow. We, we will Follow you, Lord. We enter into covenant with you. Now Moses, again, in all this, he is, he is the mediator between God and Israel. When God speaks to Moses, then Moses speaks to Israel. And Moses, in turn, prays to God on behalf of Israel. And, and God, in this moment, he calls Moses up the mountain. He calls Moses, come up to where I am so I can give you the law on two tablets of stone. And so Israel watches as Moses ascends the mountain and enters into this cloud of fire. A day passes, another day passes, a week passes, a month passes, and Moses has not come back down the mountain. And the Israelites begin to wonder what is going on. And, and, and they conclude Moses is dead. Moses died up there, and we don't know anything about this God, but, but, we, but we do know that a God delivered us. And so what they do is they quickly turn from this God who had delivered them, and they make a golden calf. They make an idol, and they say, this is the God who has delivered you from Egypt, and they worship this idol. Imagine that after all these miracles, after all these signs and wonders, quickly turning away to this idol. And God tells Moses, who's still up on the mountain, he says, he says, the people have turned away from me. The people are worshiping idols. He says, he says, Moses, I'm going to destroy them all in my wrath, and I'm going to start over with you. But Moses intercedes for the people, and he says, Lord, you made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What about your promise? He says, Lord, you delivered Israel from Egypt. What would the nation say if you delivered them only to destroy them? Lord, have mercy, relent from wrath, and the Lord listens. That the Lord listens to Moses' prayer. He relents from wrath. He does not destroy them. Moses goes back down the mountain. He destroys the two tablets the Ten Commandments were written on. And, and through a whole ordeal of events, God does not destroy his people, though he does discipline them. But then he tells Moses, go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. I'm not going with you because if I went with you, I would consume you. And Moses, Moses will have none of that. He says, God, if you won't go with us, then, then we're not going to go. If, you, if, you, if your presence won't be with us, then what will make us distinct on the earth? How will we be any different than all the other nations on the earth? You need to go with us. If I have found favor in your sight, go with us. And again, God listens to Moses. God responds to Moses. He says, I will go with you. And Moses, recognizing the grace he is receiving from God, that God is graciously responding to these prayers, takes us to today's text, Exodus 33, starting in verse 18. Moses said, 
please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This text just presents to us an ocean of truth for us to just dip our toes in this morning. We, uh, there's so much we can say from these verses, but what we want to focus in on is the proclamation of the glory of God. The Lord proclaims his glory to Moses. Moses gets a glimpse of the glory of God, and the Lord proclaims his name and his goodness to him. We're going to focus in on what he said, but we need to notice a few major realities about God from the verses leading up to this before we look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7 give us uh, the declaration of his goodness, but, but the context r- reminds us of a few truths about this God that we need to see. So, so first, notice the instructions that God gives to Moses in verses 2 and 3. He says, he says to be ready, and, and he says to, to be ready to present yourself to him on top of the mountain. He says, no one shall come up with you. Not, not, don't even let a goat graze on that mountain. And th- This teaches us, it reminds Moses that this God is a holy God. Except by His grace to make a way, He is in Himself unapproachably holy. If anyone comes to this God on their own, without readying themselves and apart from God's grace, as He said, no man shall see me and live. No one even touched the mountain. This is a holy God we are dealing with. Notice also in verses 4 and 5, we, we see, it says that Moses went up the mountain. But then it says, 
in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud. So, so, so Moses went up, but the Lord still needed to come down. This teaches us that the Lord is transcendent. He, he is high. As one commentator says, he is a great God, and no matter how high we reach, he still has to stoop. For us to have an encounter with God at all requires his infinite condescension. This God is, is unapproachably holy. He is unattainably high. Yet here he makes a way for Moses to come to him, and he descends to Moses in the cloud, and then notice how God begins the proclamation in verse 6. He says, the Lord, the Lord. He proclaims his name, the Lord, Yahweh. This is the name that God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. And what, what does the name Yahweh mean? It, it, it means God saying, I am who I am. I am who I am. That's, that's the name that God gave to Moses. That's, that's the first instance of this name in scripture is, is God saying, I am who I am. I am the eternal one. I am the self-existent one. I am the self-sufficient one. No, no one was before me. No one will be after me. I have need of nothing. Everything depends on me. It, it is a statement of God's absolute supremacy in all of creation for all of eternity. And so what the Lord is about to proclaim to Moses, if you remember what we read in verse 19, is his goodness. He says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. But, but before Moses could hear the proclamation of God's goodness, he needed to remember the glory of God's greatness. You know, we live in a culture that emphasizes the goodness of God, and even that they do wrongly, but, but, but generally forget the greatness of God the holiness of God, the highness of God, the eternality of God. This God who we are coming to is indescribably great, infinitely high, unapproachably holy. As a church this morning, do you recognize the greatness of the God we have come to this morning? We, we, we have come to worship Him today. And, and no, we are not at Mount Sinai. We don't see a fiery cloud on top of a mountain to, to, to give us this physical reverence that they, that may have, they may have had, but we, but we see him in the word. We recognize this God is the eternal God, the holy God, the high God who has made a way for us to come to him, but he is still who he is. We have come to a great God this morning. Having established the glory of his greatness to Moses, now the Lord proclaims to Moses the glory of his goodness. The glory of his goodness. And what the Lord does is he proclaims seven attributes or seven characteristics about who he is. Seven characteristics about his goodness. And notice, church, that though Moses prayed, what did Moses pray? Show me your glory. I want to see your glory. We, we do know Moses saw something because his face was shining from it when he went back down the mountain in Exodus 34 later. But Moses did not tell us what he saw, does he? He said, show me your glory, but then he records not what he saw, but what he heard. He records what he heard. And what this tells us is that the glory of God is not something external. 
God's glory is not in his external brilliance. It's not in his external beauty. It's not something that we see primarily. The glory of God is in who he is. The glory of God is his heart. The glory of God is his nature. It's his characteristics. And this is what Moses records for us. This is what Moses emphasizes, the glory of his goodness. And so what is the glory of God like? What did Moses see? What did Moses hear? First, God is merciful. The first thing God declares about himself is that he is a merciful God. Some of your translations may say compassionate. The idea here is that God, he sees our condition and he sympathizes with our need and he is drawn to help us. And remember, this is, this is who God is in himself. This is his very nature, is that he is a merciful and compassionate God. And, and we see it illustrated with the Israelites. He, he exercised his compassion and his mercy when they cried out for help in slavery. And what did God do? He heard their cry. Their cry came to him, and he was moved to respond, and he brought them the help they needed. He's compassionate and merciful. You know, in our day and age, we, especially when we live in Chicago, but even around here, we see people who have need. We see people who ask for money, ask for help, and there's obviously need there, but we often don't know what kind of need, what kind of help to give them. We often don't know what do they need, how could I help, if we even have a heart to help them. But God is compassionate. He is moved to help in need, and he knows exactly the kind of help to give. He knows exactly what we need. He's moved to help us, and in his compassion and his wisdom, he does help us. He's glorious in his mercy. Second, God is gracious. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Now the Bible says a lot about God's grace. We preach a lot about God's grace. It is God's unmerited and undeserved favor. So God's grace is, it's his, it's his unmerited and undeserved favor. So, so in other words, when God says he is gracious, here's what he's saying. He says he loves to show his kindness to those who didn't earn it and don't deserve it. That's who God is. He loves to show his kindness to those who didn't earn it and don't deserve it. He blesses for no other reason than his inclination to bless, even those who don't deserve his blessing, even those who deserve the opposite of blessing. God, in his grace, as a gracious God, loves to show kindness without anyone meriting that kindness. This is who he is. This is his glory. Third, God is patient. He declares about himself, slow to anger. A God slow to anger. And this is a proclamation of God's patience towards sinners. You know, church, I struggled with patience yesterday. I, I woke up, I guess just on the wrong side of the bed. And, and right away, I just wanted things to be a certain way. I wanted the kids to act a certain way. And I, I, I would have none of it. I, I did not... Give any patience with disobedience. I've not given any patience with the way things were. I was quick to anger. But God is never like that. God is not reactive. God does not wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He does not fly off the handle. He isn't quick to bring punishment to sinners, but he is long-suffering and patient with sinners. That's who he is. This is his glory. Fourth, God is loving 
He is loving. He says that he abounds in steadfast love. So, so we talked and built about the definition of love. It's a commitment to someone's highest good. And I would only add to that that it's an affectionate commitment to one's highest good. It's not removed from delight, but, but there's affection for the person, and that affection moves us to seek their highest good. And this is what God's love is like. He is affectionate, and that affection moves him to seek the highest good and the deepest joy of those he loves. And God abounds in this love. It's beyond measure. It overflows. There's not a limit to it. Think about the old hymn. You guys probably know this hymn, The Love of God. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, or were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth the quill, every man ascribed by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, those stretch from sky to sky. It's a beautiful image about the abounding love of God that we would drain the ocean and we could fill up a scroll that stretch as far as we can imagine. It would still be more than that. His love is abounding. And it isn't just any love. It is his steadfast love. And this leads us to the next thing that God says. You notice how he connects it with his faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is faithful. This is His glory. He is a faithful God. It means that He is unchanging. He is loyal. He always does what He says. He keeps His promises. He does not go back on His word. And what this means is that His love is a steadfast love. It's a covenant-keeping love. It's a love that comes on the basis of His promise. It's not a love that God can remove because He's promised it to us and He's a faithful God. He will be loyal in that love. He does not change, so his love will not change. And that's why he follows this up with the statement, keeping steadfast love for thousands. It's a love that he keeps, church. He keeps his love for you. He's faithful. His love will never run out. He is merciful, he is gracious, he is patient, he is loving, he is faithful. And six, God is forgiving. He is a forgiving God. He says he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Now the nuances in these three terms are really there to reinforce one truth, that there is no type of sin that God will not forgive. That God does not only forgive certain sins, but 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 then restrains forgiveness from, from worse sins. No, no, there, God, God in His nature is inclined to forgive sin. Part of His glorious goodness is to forgive sinners rather than to hold their sin against them. He forgives because He's merciful and He's gracious and He's patient. He forgives because He's faithful to His steadfast love. And church, this is the glory of God's goodness. The high and holy and eternal God is a God who has mercy on those in need. He's a God who bestows the undeserving with His grace. He's a God who is patient with sinners in their weakness. He's a God who pledges His loyal love and covenant forever. And He's a God who forgives sin. This is the glory of God. And this, this refrain is echoed again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Again and again, the, the, the psalmists and the prophets, they come back to saying, God, you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who you are, God. 
And they worship Him for His grace. They worship Him for His salvation. Yet God concludes with one more declaration about His goodness. Read with me. The end of verse 7. God says, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The final aspect of God's goodness that he declares to Moses is that he is also a just God. The glory of God's goodness is not only in his mercy and grace, it's not only in his faithfulness and forgiveness, it's not only in his love and kindness, but it's also in his justice. The glorious God is a just God. He is a righteous God. And church, it's not glorious to turn a blind eye to evil. It is not glorious to leave wickedness unpunished. It is not glorious to sweep unrighteousness under the rug. If God is not just, God is not glorious. Do you believe that? If God is not just, God is not glorious. He is not worthy of worship if he is a God who overlooks evil. But he is just. He is righteous. And he says here that he will perfectly punish the guilty for their sin. He he will punish sinners exactly as they ought to be punished for the sins they commit against him. And he says, I will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if you're like me, you should feel tension right now in this declaration from God. It it even seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? How can God be both a God who forgives sin and a God who punishes sin at the same time? What are we to do with this? Do we just hope to catch God on a good day? Or do we try to do enough good that he's inclined to be gracious on the things that we didn't do, but if we aren't good enough, then he'll stick with judgment? I mean, God doesn't mince words, does he? He says he'll by no means clear the guilty. Right after he declares, I'm a God who forgives sin. And church, this is where we need to remember that Moses experienced that day only a glimpse of the glory of God. Think about this with me. God God told Moses, I'm going to let you see just the very last fleeting glance of my glory as I pass by. And and Moses heard this proclamation of God's name, and he he heard all these attributes. And And we need to make sure that we understand that God's attributes always come together. They always work in conjunction, that you can't separate out one attribute from the other. You can't say that sometimes God is loving and sometimes he's just. No, he's always all these things. But how? Moses saw a glimpse of it that day, but he did not see the fullness of it. Moses did not see the fullness of his glory. He lived by faith in what God declared. He lived by faith with this tension. All the Old Testament saints lived by faith with this tension. Like I said earlier, the Israelites would go back to this as their refrain. This was their foundation for who God is. They would go back to it over and over and say, God, you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And, and, and most of the time they don't say after that, and, and you are also the one who, who does not uh, let the guilty go unpunished. 
And, and the reason is because they looked to God in faith as a God who would be gracious to them. They weren't neglecting his justice. They were looking in faith to the God saying, saying please forgive me. But they had a tension there. How, how could he forgive us? We know he says he will. How is he going to do that? How can he not leave us unpunished? Moses saw a glimpse of the glory of God, but the full revelation of his glory appeared with the coming of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John 1. Keep your, keep your finger there in Exodus 34, but turn with me to John 1. We've looked at this a while back as a church, but we're going to see it again today. John 1, verse 14. Listen to what the Apostle John says about Jesus Christ. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Do you see what John is saying there in light of Exodus 34? He, he says that Moses received the law from God, and Moses received, received that form of grace from God. And, and, and Moses, we know, he, he saw a glimpse of God, but God told Moses, you can't see me and live. And so he just saw a fleeting glance. But then John says that we've received something better than Moses has received. We've received grace upon grace. We've received grace and truth in Jesus Christ. No one can see but God, but the only God has made him known, and we have seen his glory. Do you want to pray with Moses, Lord, show me your glory? Is that your prayer this morning? Then you need to look to Jesus Christ. That is where you see the glory of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, in the Word made flesh. Well, what do we see when we look to Jesus? We see that God is a merciful God. Jesus sees us in our helpless, needy, sinful, broken condition, and He has compassion on us, and He moves toward us to help us. In Jesus, God condescends to help us even by becoming like us, by sharing our humanity to deliver us from our fallenness, even dying on the cross for us. God is a merciful God. We know that in Jesus. We see that he's a gracious God. Through Jesus, God provides salvation and blessing and life to people like you and me who don't deserve it and who haven't earned it. He sends Jesus in his grace. And through the death of Christ, he makes that grace available to us. We see that God is slow to anger. Think about it. God does not respond to our sinfulness by condemning us, but by sending his Son to save us. He doesn't react to us in wrath. He invites us instead to repent and be saved. He's patient with us. We see that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus makes a new covenant with us, and he ratifies that covenant with his own body and his own blood as he dies on the cross. He loves us with abounding and enduring love by laying down his life for us. 
we see that God forgives sin. Jesus came pronouncing forgiveness to all who repent. Jesus declared to people throughout his ministry that their sins were forgiven. And even on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And lastly, we see all of these things, his mercy, his grace, his patience, his love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness. We see these things working not in opposition to his justice, but in unity with his justice. God will not let, go, let evil go unpunished. In the cross of Christ, in the death of Christ, Jesus stepped into the place of the guilty. And he received the righteous justice of God against our sins in himself. He bore the wrath of God in our place. And in doing this, Jesus demonstrated who God is. So, so, so we, we look to the cross and we think about the cross. And, and when, you, when you see the cross, what do you see? You see the love of God meeting the holiness of God. You see the grace of God meeting the righteousness of God. You see the mercy of God meeting the justice of God all there on the cross as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hangs in our place for our sins to make a way for us to be saved. As Romans says, so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what this means, church, is that when we think about the cross, we shouldn't just see the cross as the way to be saved. The cross is definitely the way to be saved. It is the only way to be saved. But the cross, that, that, that does not exhaust the meaning of the cross of Christ. The cross is not just the means of salvation. The cross is the revelation of the glory of God. In heaven, in Revelation 5, we see Jesus being praised as, as, as what? The Lamb who was slain. Forever and ever and ever, the focus of heaven is going to be on the cross of Christ. We're not going to move on from it. We're going to fix our eyes there forever because this is where the glory of God is revealed in His love and His justice and His holiness and His mercy working together to save us. This is the glory of God. And so do you want to see the glory of God? Do you, do you ask God, show me your glory? Then you need to look to the cross of Christ the totality of who he is, the totality of his goodness, all on display in Christ crucified. We're about to do this together. We're about to enter into the Lord's Supper together. And as we remember the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins, we need to recognize that we are beholding the glory of God fully this morning. That's the music team to come up, and as, as they do, I want to ask this question. What should be the posture of our hearts in light of the glory of God and the cross of Christ? How should we posture ourselves this morning before this God? I believe that Moses, though he didn't see what we now see, his response was what ours should be. If you look back in Exodus 34, verses 8 through 9, this is what our response should be. We see Moses' humility the text says, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth. He makes himself low before this glorious God. He recognizes his smallness, and he recognizes his neediness in light of God's great glory. So this morning, church, bow your heads before the Lord. Humble your hearts before his goodness. Come to him as you are and recognize how great and good he is and how much we need him. We, we see Moses' awe. It says that he worshipped. He responded to the glory of God by giving him glory. 
He, he magnified the glory of God in that moment. He affirmed back to God, you truly are glorious. I, I, I affirm it. I see it. I recognize that you're glorious and you are worthy of my worship. So this morning, give God the glory, church. Worship him. Reverence his name. Be in awe of who he is. Be in awe of God this morning. We see his request for forgiveness. He confesses on behalf of himself and with Israel. He says, we are a stiff-necked people. We have stubborn, hard hearts. We have iniquity that needs to be pardoned. We have sin that needs to be removed. And you are a God of grace who forgives sin. So forgive us, Lord. Pardon our sin. So this morning, church, on the basis of the goodness of God and the work of Christ, bring your sins to him. Bring your iniquity to him. Bring your stiff-necked hearts to him and say, Lord, pardon our iniquity. Forgive us of our sin because you are a gracious, forgiving God. And finally, church, we see Moses request the presence of God. He says, go with us. He says, take us for your inheritance. You see, once Moses saw the glory of God, that is what he desired. Moses was not content to just be forgiven and move on. No, Moses did not want to leave the presence of God. Moses wanted more of that glory. He wanted God himself. He craved his presence. He desired to live in the midst of his glory. So he prayed, let us be your people. And through the cross, God answers yes to this request. Through Jesus' death for our sins, we receive his mercy and his grace and his love. And now, church, we are the people of this glorious God. He has taken us as his inheritance. So this morning, find your joy not only in forgiveness, but in what that forgiveness has achieved. The glory of God for us. That This is the first foundation of the gospel. This is the first building block of our church. God is a God of glory. And there is nothing better in all the earth than to find joy in that glory. And so this morning, let's taste and see the glory of the goodness of our great God. Let's stand together.